Natasha, thank you so much for joining us for this very special podcast today. Um, one thing that really, really stood out doing the research, I'm going to quote exactly what I what I took from the internet. Uh, born in Malaysia, grew up in London and the Netherlands, studied in Canada and the UK, worked across Europe and Asia Pacific. You have been all over the world. What what is what a story it's been to this point? Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, I look. I think it, it it feeds my curiosity. It's a sign of my curiosity, but also um, I grew up as you see for because my my father um, was traveling quite a bit for work um, and kind of caught that international bug early on, and it's never left me. I, I'm super. It, this is really something that comes very naturally to me to be curious about people, um, which also you know helps me in my profession, obviously. Um, but I've loved getting all these new cultural insights, um, learning about different people in different settings. So I feel super lucky to have had that kind of experience and background. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll get it. We'll get into kind of the journey as as we go along. But that is one thing I wanted to kind of just start on, if that's all right. Um, you know, just to give people a little bit of a flavor. Obviously, we've given a bit of an overview there. But uh, could you just give a, a little bit of a summary of your career to this point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I graduated from McGill University, um, having studied econometrics, I um, I was mostly interested in studying abroad because, again, the curiosity, I didn't have kind of a dead set idea of what I wanted to do. And so this was uh, 1997. Um, it was a typical strategy consulting, investment banking options. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to be offered a choice. And um, my father had been in banking and said, well, you know, I think for you, I think strategy consulting is probably a better fit. Um, and uh, and so, yes, I joined a company called Mercer Management Consulting in London um, that was acquired by Oliver Wyman lately and loved it, um, got access uh, to many different type of sectors, but actually fairly early on was lucky enough to work with a bunch of our US colleagues on some of the European companies that were sort of in the early days investigating internet options um, as a, as a main, means to diversify the revenues. Um, and that uh, really, after two years, got me to think, this is way too exciting. I want to be much closer to this than just being a strategy consulting. And one of um, my colleagues and our dear friends had moved to a company that was backed by a venture firm called Arts Alliance. Um, and uh, he introduced me to the founder and I went to see him and with the idea of, well, maybe he's got something in his portfolio. And I met him and I heard about what they were doing. So exciting. So I actually said to him, look, I'd love to work for you. And he said, well, that's great, but I don't have anything available right now, but I'll call you if, if anything comes up. A week later, he calls me back. Wonderful Norwegian guy, Thomas Hoag. And um, he said, look, we've actually got room for an analyst. Come uh, and have a meet a few more people. So that started my career in venture capital. Six years of it. Um, working with entrepreneurs, you know, we worked, worked with lastminute.com with Brent and Martha, um, worked with um, Chateau Online, Kiala, uh, and lots of exciting companies in Europe and in, in the US. Um, and then after a couple of years, of course, the bubble burst, we looked in a different direction and then we set up a company that took a different angle that said, we have lots of um, an audience, but we, we don't actually have technology to really leverage that audience or optimize that audience. And then we looked into ticketing and ultimately we looked into art house cinemas um, and um, the picture house cinemas city screen were looking to get some funding. So we took a stake in them and um, I worked very close with them. It was super exciting. And that from there we built um, uh, sort of the art, arts alliance media 
uh, company. Anyway, then at some point I had two young kids. My um, husband, also Dutch, it was time for the family to move back to the Netherlands. Um, and there I got in touch with Egon Zender. Uh, at first I wasn't too interested in doing uh, search or headhunting. Um, and then um, uh, they introduced me to a private equity firm. Uh, as an investor relations officer, I did that for six months, but I thought, no, I really want to do something more dynamic, really work with people rather than assets. Egon Zena came knocking again. They placed me at this firm. So they said, well, if you're not super happy there, come back to talk to us. And that was 16 and a half years ago. So now at Egon Zender, I work uh, everything sort of consumer internet, um, a, a bit of SaaS as well. And with Egon Zender, I've also spent three years in our Hong Kong office. Um, and um, yeah, uh, amazing colleagues love what I do. Uh, and so it's search development, um, anything that's talent related, top of the house. No, that's such a brilliant overview. Thank you for that. But, you know, one of the reasons why we were so uh, thrilled to have you on the podcast today is because you do have that bird's eye view of, you know, across sector, um, across the globe. You know, there, there's so much, so such good insight that you'll be able to give us. And as this kind of conversation goes on, we're, we're very much looking forward to uh, kind of unpacking that a little bit. But I want to just go back to something that's actually on, on, on the website, which says, I began my career in venture capital and I've always been impressed by entrepreneurs' passion and conviction. Now, you obviously kind of give, gave us a little bit of a, a timeline there, but what was it about the entrepreneurial spirit that really, really hooked you, especially in those, those kind of formative years? What was it about that kind of uh, drive and that passion that you saw in people that, that really just drew you to the job and said, this is what I want to do? Yeah, you, you said those words. It is exactly that, the passion and the drive. And to meet people who are so convinced about a product or a service um, and that are are so determined. I remember in the Arts Alliance days speaking to people with families who would take a second mortgage on their house, have sold their car, and have such strong belief in what they were doing. Um, and um, and then you meet people who are working in large corporates who are, it felt like they were just doing a job and they were basically just sort of ticking through the hours, whereas these people who would basically, it, it almost felt like committed their whole life to making this happen. Um, and yeah, I really, I was so inspired by that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you, you kind of mentioned lastminute.com and a lot of those are kind of early companies and, you know, kind of key to that, especially at this stage, there's plenty of it going on now, but is disruption, you know, was, was disruption back then something that you kind of sought out? I know like, you know, especially VCs, they don't necessarily have the best relationship with disruption because, you know, it, essentially they're changing the game completely. But, you know, when you saw someone like Martha come, come along with lastminute.com, were you very much like, there's something special here. This is going to be one to watch. Yeah, for sure. And um, uh, as um, our, our founder at Arts Alliance would always say, an idea is a dime in a dozen. And so very quickly, I understood that it was around the people. You know, ideas always came in in packs. You know, you would see a, a real estate platform and suddenly you get like 25 business plans for real estate platforms. You're like, okay, obviously the market is ready for this, for that kind of disruption. Something's in it. But then how do you choose the team that is the, the best team in our belief to then make it happen? So I think we were all about disruption, um, not for the sake of disruption, but really realizing, wow, you know, because of technology, you're able to bring supply and demand together in a much more effective way. So there is 
there's demand for this and an opportunity, there's money to be made. But then um, are there enough barriers to entry that there's not like 90 other people knocking at the door? Um, so and, and I've always been interested in in, in that kind of newness in, in opportunities. I've always been a bit more, I would say, about what we call a dreamer, a bit more of that visionary person connecting the dots and seeing opportunities rather than thinking, oh, this is never going to work. Yeah, I know that's it. It's, it's really, really exciting. Again, even just hearing you talk about it, you can hear the passion uh, in there. And, you know, let's go on to the Egan Zender uh, stage of things. And, you know, obviously you started with them. Um, and like you mentioned, you spent a few years in Hong Kong. Now, kind of going from the Netherlands over to Hong Kong, even for those three years, like you mentioned, young family, was, was that quite daunting for you? Or because you are such a people person, was that just like a, an incredible, exciting opportunity that you just couldn't turn down? It was an incredible, exciting opportunity. And, and look, it was really driven by my husband's job at the time. But I had always been very keen to give my kids that kind of international experience as well. Um, as, as you probably heard in the, in the very beginning, that was very big foundational to who I am today, to my identity. And very keen for my two boys to experience that as well. Um, so I was kind of jumping up and down to go there. And because I was born in Malaysia and... We have a bit of family history in Asia. Um, I just thought that was the, you know, the best opportunity ever. But it was, I hadn't realized, it was daunting once I had landed and realized, oh wow, this is really very different from doing this work in Western Europe. Um, and then there's a lot of factors. There's the being a, um, a Western young and young looking female working in a space that is, it wasn't new in Asia, but so there was the digital and then search, which especially in greater China, um, we were mostly at the time working for um, multinationals and that was changing. We were, the, the multinationals were transitioning more to local leaders and for local leaders, search wasn't that obvious yet. There was still a lot of working with family and friends who you trust. So there was a lot changing and um, um, and also, of course, within Egon Zender, you know, we have uh, many, many different offices around the world. And there was, I, I really appreciated then what, how different it is working with a fairly large office in Amsterdam. We're super well established in the Dutch market. Um, and the dynamics in the office were different. There was a lot more travel required across Asia. So I learned a lot, but I also, it was also a very humbling experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, again, kind of thinking back to those times and, you know, specifically uh, the differences in leadership, did you notice a, a big difference in style in the way that, you know, leaders functioned in Hong Kong versus kind of, you know, what, what you were used to seeing in, in the Netherlands? Very much so. Um, gosh, I wouldn't even know where to start. But so I think there's, there's, the, there's the leadership component and then there is the I would say the people dynamic, of course, in in my role, um, I want to understand people. So it's not just going through their CV and what you've done, but it's also it's very much about who are you and what what are your I would say, what's your personality pattern that makes you the leader that you are? What are you triggered by? What are your I would say what I call dark sides um, and in Europe and I think especially, of course, in the Netherlands, we're very direct. We're very open with each other. So I can ask someone, look, what had the greatest impact on your formative years? Whereas in, in Asia, that's not an obvious question. Um, and so I really had to get used to how do I really get to know someone in this culture? 
Um, and then from a leadership perspective, um, on the client side, I think um, there was a lot going on in digital, especially digital transformation. Hong Kong is a big financial services market. So there were some very, very large companies that we worked with that were obviously seeing the trend of digital transformation. And I would say really um, wanting to understand more. So I spent a lot of time, I think, educating, respectfully challenging. Um, and then there was that moment for me to understand, okay, now I've got to stop because otherwise they're going to basically just use the information rather than, I would say, you know, pay for our services in a way as well. Um, and, and there is more of the, there's more formality. There's, there's, it's more about hierarchy. Um, and leaving across Asia is also highly complex because we think we know Asia and we talk about Asia as one concept, but there really is not, there's no similarity really between Japan, India, Southeast Asia, and then greater China. So it really took for me time to understand that those really are four fairly distinct areas within that one continent. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's really interesting to to kind of get that that insight. And, you know, just thinking about your kind of time at Egan Zender and, you know, kind of how th things have changed during that time, you know, um, there's definitely uh, a, a change in leadership we've noticed over the last few years, definitely a lot more honesty, uh, a lot more people willing to share that, you know what, I've actually failed in several things, whereas before it may have been, you know, a, a little bit uh, of a shameful thing that we kind of cover up, for example. But, you know, just in your time, as far as getting to know the leaders and, you know, kind of attracting that talent, what kind of key differences have you noticed in those leaders that you kind of started in this early years to the ones that you start, you're kind of placing today? Yeah, it's a great question, Josh. There's, oh, there's so much um, to mention. Um, and, and a lot of course, of course, has been driven also by the, um, the world that we live in today. So we talk a lot about the world has become uh, a lot more complex rather than complicated, complicated problems. You can solve in linear ways, complex problems. You can't, um, and you know, basic example, when first people went to the moon, I mean, that's complex. Um, but today also the setting where there's macro you know, geopolitical challenges there is thinking through digital uh, transformation right the enablement of technology there is um, sustainability uh, there is um, diversity and inclusion uh, there's so much coming at you as a leader that that operation operating in a complex setting requires a different kind of leadership and I think that is the I would say the single most important driver of um, the requirements of different leadership. So what does that mean um, in terms of a leader? A leader no longer is, um, I would say, an autocratic top-down leader who has all the answers, who can set a three to five year strategy, um, not necessarily on their own, but even just with their with their core leadership team. Um, it, uh, a leader today is much more of a, um, someone who, who enables an environment where people can innovate, where people can experiment, where you inspire the, I would say, the community in your organization to come up with ideas. Um, so that responsibility really carries much broader and deeper in the organization. The second is that um, there is that degree of, as you also call it, honesty, I would maybe call it vulnerability, where indeed a leader 
um, is today a leader that is much more respected and followed today is one who also is willing to say, look, I don't have all the answers and we need to find the answers together. And here are some of the questions I'm asking myself, because when you create that kind of, I would say, openness in your organization, it also makes it yeah, psychologically safe for the others to, to, to want to come up with ideas, to, to feel comfortable enough to, um, to, to suggest things, whereas in the past, you know, they were just kind of taking orders and executing. Um, and then, of course, there's that the whole piece around um, uh, sustainability, um, where talent, especially the, the younger talent, most of them will only join organizations that have uh, a purpose. And I'm not saying that purpose only needs to be around sustainability, but companies need to be purposeful. And that younger talent, but increasingly more and more talent, also can really sense whether it's authentic, right? Leaders need to be a lot more authentic. Um, and then, of course, really uh, uh, evidencing um, doing something about diversity and inclusion, um, not just talking about it, but is there evidence? Um, so, yeah, again, I really see and we, we also see like I, it's a lot more it's a lot more difficult being a leader today. And therefore, also, we, we've come to the belief that no leader is ready to take on a next role. Like when we do CEO succession, we've stopped kind of thinking, OK, here's someone who's ready for the role today. It's much more about discovering leaders and then identifying how to develop those leaders. And we do that together with the board, but being very clear on where is it that they need to be developed and obviously then making sure that that works in the trajectory of of the company. Let me stop there because I know that I've said a lot there. No, no, it's it's really, really interesting insight. And, you know, one, one of the things I wanted to, to ask about, we've had a few people on the podcast um, who have discussed that, you know, they've come to the conclusion themselves that, it's time that I, this company has outgrown me. I cannot do this anymore. And like you said, it's kind of hiring in the next person, but some of them have taken the decision to take someone that's completely outside of their sector, um, you know, of their industry that has almost fresh eyes. Yes, they may not have the granular details, but as far as leadership goes, that's the best way to kind of do it. And, you know, there's a number of people that, as I say, we've, we've discussed this with. And is that something that you've noticed? And, you know, do you have any kind of success stories that you can share about that, if so? Um, so absolutely notice it. And we also um, are, are play, I think, a big role in that. Um, and and there, there are reasons for it and, and definitely also success stories. But... Um, and it goes exactly to the point I was making earlier, because it, it, the, the, the type of leadership, the requirements have changed so much. When you stick to the sector, one, very often within that sector, you just cannot find the person who is that evolved in terms of the leadership. Because there are some sectors that started um, evolving in this direction earlier on. If I just think about digital transformation, right, the, the sectors that were closer to the consumer um, had to change earlier on because the consumer expectations were changing. So if you think about um, media, uh, retail, uh, retail banking, right, those were some of the sectors that were um, affected by digital transformation much earlier than some of the others. Um, th there are some sectors that are only now really uh, bringing in leaders to drive their digital transformation um, just because the, they didn't really need to, right? There was, there was no real sense of urgency. Um, so 
sector-wise, um, we also therefore really encourage our clients to open the candidate pool and look at different sectors. Uh, and then really establishing clarity on then what is it in terms of requirements that are must-haves and what are nice-to-haves. And we always try to minimize the must-haves. Look, there are some sectors where it's very difficult to go outside the sector. Um, but then even, look, if I think of, for example, so the insurance sector, um, where uh, or, or or banking, right? That's when often our clients say, well, you know, we really would like someone from that space. But even there, you can say, well, look, let's then talk about what is it that makes this space so specific? And often it's it's because it's regulated. Well, there are other sectors that are regulated. Um, you know, you can go into uh, telecoms, for example. So that's been an interesting transition between telecoms to some of the financial services spaces to, to also find these leaders to drive digital transformation. Um, another one is in the look at, okay, well, maybe there's a subscription element for what other sectors have the subscription component. Uh, so, and, and I think there's been, yeah, definitely several uh, cases to point out where there have been leaders who've come in from different sectors who've been incredibly successful, but also then, of course, you really need to emphasize in the onboarding. There have also been plenty of examples where it's not been successful, particularly where a more, I would say, legacy company um, has wanted to bring someone in who was seen as more digital, also to make a point to the organization. I remember there was a, a bank that brought in um, someone from Netflix and it was like, great, you know, this is really making a point that we are full on going digital. But you know, yeah, there's you can do that within limitations, right? I mean, that, that just didn't work because the person came in, didn't have much respect for the legacy systems, the legacy organization, and also things were just going way too slow. He was used to a much faster environment right so all that we've all we've all learned from all those different um i would say almost like experiments yeah and again that's that's really interesting and a really really good example there for sure and you know you you kind of touched on a little bit there but you know talent shortage there's something uh that is spoken about a lot in the uk specifically about not being able to secure the right talent that many businesses, especially like fast growing businesses need necessarily. Um, you know, how there's a number of factors of that we won't, we won't go into It's well documented, but you know, as far as talent shortage goes, is this, you know, obviously you are a global company. I mean, you know, you, you guys, uh, you know, kind of service 36 countries, I believe, and with 63 offices. So your, your scale is absolutely brilliant, but you know, as far as kind of talent shortages, um, you know, is this something that you notice in other parts of the world too? Yes, uh, I think, um, yeah, talent shortage. Although, look, I think we're we're lucky enough to operate at the at, the, at that top of the house, um, and in the way that Egon Zender is set up, really as as one firm. Now, what does that mean? Um, the way we work together, we we've actually we're we're motivated and compensated to to really work together rather than have kind of country profit centers or an eat what you kill model is not what we have. And and so I think that's also why a lot of us are here because what does that do? It really facilitates and optimizes collaboration. And I think especially in today's world where we, we, you know talent is global talent. Um, and so of course, not, not everybody is willing and able to, to relocate, but increasingly for exciting challenges, people are. And I think that makes a world of difference. So for me, whether I'm looking to solve a search for a Netherlands headquartered company or one in, in New York, let's say, it really doesn't matter. Uh, so we have access to those, to those talent pools and through colleagues 
um, I equally feel like I know talent pool in New York as well as I know them here in the Netherlands. So I, I don't think that we suffer from talent shortages. Um, um, that there are specific pockets of talent that that are like at the moment there's a huge demand for CFOs, uh, uh, of course, especially right in in growth companies. Um, and depending on where we are in the economy, there's always the kind of the pockets that are uh, harder to um, hard to track. Like chief product officers also very difficult in Europe. There's a lot of them in the US, but they're often too expensive in Europe. Yeah, no, again, that, that's that's really interesting insight. And, you know, kind of coming on to, to the innovation sides and the things that is super exciting, you know, obviously yourself, you've discussed kind of throughout this conversation, digital transformation, and, you know, you very much, you know, being in the coalface as you would of the artificial intelligence, data science, and all the kind of digital transformation, uh, you know, kind of innovations. And, you know, what, what kind of innovation are you seeing at the moment that really, really gets you excited that goes like, wow, this is going to be, this is going to be big in the to come yeah well look it's got to be um sort of gpt enabled innovation uh i just think because it's so right widespread and some people talk about it as you know what was digital transformation is now ai transformation um and i think hopefully every company is experimenting with it what it can do i think for some companies it's also really thrown uh, uh you know a, a challenges to them in, in, in their business model. I think especially in, for example, uh, ed tech, right, where companies were, um, had developed a model that was where self-help was a big component. Uh, they're now really having to think about their strategy, their business model. Um, uh, a lot of companies are working with AI to improve their productivity, of course, with like a, a, a self-help model. Um, but there, look, there, there are so many ways that that can really drive the innovation. Every time I speak to someone and they tell me about how they're experimenting with it, what's, what's, what they're working on, I'm amazed. I honestly, I am it's simple things from a, a marketplace model that spends a lot of their money on uh, taking photos of the product. They have a studio, um, but then now through different kinds of AI models are able to produce images um, uh, in no time. Um, you know, that, yeah, again, I'm, I'm sure we'll see lots of uh, fantastic examples. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, I suppose the flip side of the AI revolution, if you will, um, you know, there's that frequently uh, quoted Goldman Sachs uh, study that reveals that 300 million jobs are going to be replaced by AI. But at the same time, the Institute of Future of Work says that 80% of the jobs that will be around in 10, 15 years time don't even exist yet. So, you know, kind of, uh, I know, obviously, you, you kind of, generally kind of uh, focus on kind of high level leadership uh, positions. But, you know, as far as a bird's eye view of this, as far as, you know, kind of where we're heading as, as a, as a species, I suppose, how, how do you kind of view that? Are you on the, on the, in the camp of this is going to be absolutely fine. This is really exciting. Or are you a little bit more cautious? Like some commentators tend to be. Like I typically the kind of person who sees the glass uh, half full. So I, I do think it's incredibly exciting and um, at the same time look I'm, I'm very realistic and I'm well aware already through just the, that first I mean, the digital revolution there are um, many companies uh, who have had to reskill people where there were also plenty of the population who just said look I, I, I don't want this I don't think I can do this um, and um, many people were let go um, so I, I look I'm sure I'm sure we're going to face this and what opportunities are there going to be for those people? I don't have the answer. Um, so yeah, I would I would say cautious, but 
I almost say I, I allow myself to think about the exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And changing gears a little bit, um, I am quite intrigued about personal branding. Now, obviously, you know, there, there's a lot of leaders who are very, very visible on LinkedIn, for example, and make quite a big point of, of their personal brand. And, you know, some tend to kind of just stay in the shadows, like to just be someone who's very successful at a company, but, you know, isn't very visible. As far as placement goes, um, have you noticed that would you prefer candidates to maybe be a little bit more visible as far as their personal brand goes, or does it kind of depend on the person? It depends on the person, but it's an important data point. So when I'm assessing someone, uh, when we, you know, you know we, we, we always do that in teams, um, we do take all those data points into consideration. Uh, and so it's more a question of when someone is less visible is finding out why. Um, and um, some people do it as a do it purposely where they say, well, look, I just think it's a waste of time. I want to dedicate all my time in the company. What's it going to do uh, for some? Also, you haven't really thought through the importance of it in attracting other talent to their organization. Um, others feel uncomfortable, they don't know how to authentically voice themselves in other channels. And I do think that leaders could do with more uh, training, more advice. Um, there are many leaders who seemingly are very present, but they then actually, of course, have a, an army of people who are doing it for them. So then when you ask them about it, so tell me about this uh, post of yours. And they're like, oh, uh, what are you talking about? So it's it's uh, right. There's a there's a caution there as well. Um, but look, when we uh, assess leaders, we, we, of course, look at their competencies. Another dimension that we take is what we call potential. And there are four um, factors that determine potential. One is determination. So really, how driven are you to 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 to, to do something? Uh, the next one is about insights. So with all the information that's out there, what do you actually do with it? How do you make sense of it? So you can be super, super smart, but you might not be uh, scoring very high on insights if uh, you know you, you kind of let those bits for what they are rather than sort of really able to connect the dots and then take that information to a next level. Then there's curiosity uh, speaks for itself. By the way, I should point out, it's not just curiosity about the world around you, but curiosity about yourself. And that can be missing. You can find people who say, oh, I'm super curious. You know, I read everything and I talk to many people, but I've not ever really looked at themselves. And that I think increasingly we're seeing as a limiting factor for uh, leaders who are not able to make it to the next level. And then the last piece to, to come to your point is around engagement. And engagement, what we look for there is, do you are you able to engage both people on a one-on-one -on -one level and in larger groups? Now, how do you do that, whether you that means that you're on stage in your company, that you are on stage uh, at large uh, speaking events, um, whatever you do. But it is about bringing people along on the journey. Right. So I do think that in today's world, uh, people do expect leaders to have a voice. Uh, and again, I think it's important then for us to um, be understanding where they like to have their voice. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you've covered kind of those, those some of those key kind of good points that a, a leader needs to have. But what, what have you noticed that uh, kind of not frustrates you, but maybe would go, oh, this is this is a little bit of a mistake. I wish they could improve here. As where, Where's the key uh, improvement that you think some leaders need to 
really buck up their ideas and really just focus on getting better. Is there any kind of particular point that comes to mind? Yeah, I think it's 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 this point about themselves. Um, I, I think um, that well, we've done a big study among CEOs um, two two three years ago, and for us, the biggest insight there was that leaders are saying that in order to transform their company, they need to transform themselves. So they're starting to see, wow, this is really so demanding on me. I, I, I'm not equipped in how I show up as a leader today. Um, and so we've actually, over the past years, developed quite a few of those transformational programs where we work with leaders. We bring them together in, in, in groups of 15, 20 of like-minded people um, and work with them really to develop much more of an understanding of who they are, but also what is what has made them into who they are. And often those are uh, patterns that are developed in their childhood. And then once they understand that, so why do I feel triggered by this? And why have I only, do I only have access of a part of me? Why have I shut down another part of me? Um, and that's the leader who I am today and helping them unlock and giving them access to the much broader range of leadership capabilities. I think that's um, that's a massive opportunity for, for many leaders, but it requires a willingness to really go inside and, and work with, you know, I don't think you can do this on your own, but work with someone to really go in um, looking at that, looking at it without judgment, wanting to understand yourself, and then also wanting to experiment with with yourself and it also requires you to i think be much more open to feedback i, I really would wish for uh, many more companies to have more of a, a feedback culture um, so that people can learn about themselves and we're seeing this more in younger generations they want feedback on the fly it's not just i want a one once a year formal feedback survey i want to know after this meeting hey how did i do what could have i done better I, honestly, we could talk to you for ages, Nazasha, but we are coming to the end of the podcast, unfortunately. It's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Centre to bring you the Good News Postcard. Natasha, today your question comes from Amy, aged 13. Hi, my name is Amy and I'm part of Jill Dando News. My question for you is what is your favourite part of your job? Hi, Amy. That's a great question. Uh, the favorite part of my job has to be meeting new people. Um, I, I just love learning more about people and I can never stop myself asking questions um, and just, yeah, really getting to know who they are. That is a great answer to a great question. Thank you very much. And we've kind of touched on it throughout this conversation, but we are a business leader. We have to ask you the question, what to you makes a great business leader? Uh, a great business leader uh, is someone who is um, passionate, curious, um, someone who is um, really driven in today's world to make the world a better place. I mean, look, our purpose at Egon Zender is leadership for a better world. Um, and I think those leaders who are really committed to that uh, have, have got to be the, yeah, the best out there today. Absolutely brilliant. And um, do you have any final words for our audience today, Natasha? I don't, Josh, but just thank you. Uh, thank you for your great questions. Um, and um, yeah, I, I really hope that there are takeaways for, for everybody uh, out there. Look, I think just reflecting on, on, on your day, on your week and having that kind of introspection, um, I'd love for everyone to, to take that back rather than just, we're so busy, right? Uh, we're so kind of racing on, uh, uh, affected by all the different 
bits of information that are coming to us, but for your own learning and growth, uh, the biggest gift you can you can for yourself is to just slow down. Find a moment to slow down in your day, in your week, uh, to reflect, um, and that's where your growth comes from. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, final kind of question for you. Thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. But where can keep people kind of follow you online and uh, and contact you if if need be? Thanks for asking. So I'm on uh, LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best place to to follow me. Uh, and then on the Egon Zender website, uh, you can find me. And there's a place also where you can uh, uh, contact me. Mm-hmm.